May it please the court, counsel, Jennifer Bovitz appearing on behalf of the director's office. The director encourages the court to give great deference to the referee in this case, who found KP, respondent's client, vulnerable, harmed, and sexually harassed, while also finding respondent's actions crass and his defense as wholly not credible. While the court has had the opportunity to address attorney misconduct of a sexual nature, the court has not previously been presented with the constellation of facts here. The cumulative misconduct that respondent engaged in while representing a client includes ongoing sexual harassment, soliciting his client for sex in exchange for payment of fees, intentional dishonesty while lying to law enforcement, lying to the director in 2018, three years after lying to law enforcement. Respondent's misconduct also demonstrates his unamenability to probation. His violation also demonstrates a complete failure to be able to maintain his books and records, an offense for which he was also on probation for. Respondent's misconduct comes in the wake of six prior disciplinary violations. Not only is the misconduct itself, the misconduct that is committed within the current petition serious and cumulative, but it is aggravated, aggravated by his significant disciplinary history. Three prior suspensions, 30-day suspensions, a prior public reprimand, and two admonitions. Nothing less than a two-year suspension is appropriate in this case, and the court urges this court to adopt the referee's recommendation, which is wholly supported by the evidence. Counsel, uh, one of the um, defenses, if you might put it that way here, is that um, some of the conduct occurred while the respondent was on codeine. codeine. Um, Obviously, lawyer well-being is important to the court. Obviously, we've got we've had a number of cases where chemical dependency has turned out to be a mitigating factor. Talk to us about whether the codeine issue is sufficient to qualify as a mitigating factor here. In fact, a respondent was provided an opportunity to present mitigation in this case, and he did not. He was served with interrogatories in this case and indicated that the misconduct in fact, did not occur that he was not presenting mitigation. At the referee trial, uh, an objection was raised when he began testifying as it related um, to, this, to the substances he was taking as a result of his surgeries, and he conceded that, in fact, that testimony was not being offered for the purpose of mitigation. It was being offered for the purpose of explaining his lack of memory. The referee found appropriately uh, that there was no mitigation here and that it was not offered, and that does not appear to be one of the defenses raised by respondent in this case, that the referee erred on that point. That does not appear to be one of the issues. That uh, in, is, in fact, correct. There was no mitigation in this case, and it appears that respondent's uh, attempt to discuss, again, I say discuss because there was no evidence uh, other than respondent's discussion of, of his medications, there was no testimony from a physician. There were no medical records presented. And again, those were asked for. 
respondent was given great opportunity to provide any of that information uh, had it been uh, relevant, had it been present. The director, of course, wants to know that information and would take it into consideration, but it was not, it was not presented uh, despite am ample opportunity. Um, and in fact, the referee noted that, that there was no medical testimony, no pharmacological evidence, none of that present, and it's not supported in the record as a form of mitigation or otherwise. And in fact, the, the referee found that respondents' claim of lack, of lack of memory is wholly not credible. Do you think the, uh, the conduct here, setting aside any aggravating circumstances, is sufficient to support a two-year suspension? Yes. Uh, in fact, when you, when you look at this court's precedent as it relates to misconduct of a sexual nature, this court has not addressed pure uh, sexual harassment of a client on, on its face, sexual harassment of a client. We can see in the Griffith case and in the Peters case, sexual harassment in, in other, other situations, in an employment situation, dealing in the law school situations. And then in Bulmer, for example, you see consensual sex occurring with a client. But what's different there is that is in a conflict context. So a conflict context, which is a different rule violation. Here, this is sexual harassment of a client. In addition, again, to the dishonesty, two separate acts of dishonesty, three years apart, and the violations of probation, and sexual harassment involving a client. And why that is so severe is that differential in the nature of the relationship. This client was captive, and the record demonstrates that. The referee made very significant findings as it relates to the vulnerability of the client here. She was a client in a criminal matter. She was 22 years old at the time this representation was undertaken. She was charged with a very low-level criminal offense in the criminal world, uh, something even that had a statutorily eligible discharge and dismissal um, if she successfully completed probation, a fact that respondent really withheld from her at integral times. That are, those are some facts that are, that are important for the court to analyze and pay attention to because it's the nature of the fiduciary relationship that even comment 17 of rule 1.8 gets to about the dynamic of the trust relationship that respondent here exploited and used that to keep her captive in that relationship and what makes this conduct on its face so damaging, so detrimental. And when we look at the purposes of lawyer discipline, protecting the public, protecting, protecting the profession, looking at this constellation of misconduct, lengthy suspensions are necessary, both for that protection aspect and to deter this attorney and to deter other attorneys from committing this misconduct, which is also captured within the purposes of lawyer yeah, discipline. Yeah, the client in this case uh, appears to have been vulnerable. On the other hand, in the Griffith case, you had an adjunct professor who had a lot of control over the law student uh, who he sexually uh, assaulted. And the suspension was for 90 days with the requirement of reinstatement. Um, quite a difference between 90 days and two years. 
Um, how do you justify the two years? Respondents' disciplinary history uh, here. What's also notable and what the court my, may find interesting is the same referee that heard the Griffith case uh, heard this case. So the, the same referee that made that 90-day recommendation in Griffith made the two-year recommendation here. Uh, that's notable. Well, what's also important is respondent's disciplinary history. Mr. Griffith didn't have any disciplinary history. Respondent has six prior disciplinary matters, three prior 30-day suspensions, and was on probation at the time of this offense. Uh, that's remarkably different, uh, remarkably different, and also has this um, lack, of, lack of remorse, what, which we see, but I don't think we need to hone in on that to make this remarkably different. The conduct here is so egregious along with that disciplinary history, that alone warrants a two-year suspension and everything else is a bonus. I want to make sure I understand the facts here correctly. Um, am I correct that, uh, I'm going through the, his discipline history, that every time he was on probation there was a violation of some sort? Am I, am I reading that correctly? He's completely amenable to probation. Um, Mr. Kennedy... Completely unamenable to a probation is your position, right? Yes, he has never successfully completed probation. Every time he has been on probation, it has been revoked as a result of additional misconduct. And what did the director's office ask of the referee in terms of a recommendation? The, the director requested, requested a two-year suspension and felt somewhat bound by that recommendation based, based on the precedent. It was difficult to recommend, for example, disbarment without this court yet having uh, had, had the opportunity to address that. And again, that's why the recommendation is that the minimally appropriate discipline is a two-year suspension without this court yet having recommended, uh, without having imposed discipline in a case such as this with this constellation of facts. And the sexual harassment is a different violation than the attempted sex for services it's the, the the facts are combined um there there was the solicitation of of sex for services but it is in a the facts overlap so those unwelcome sexual comments also it also include the solicitation of sex for fees so how do we count that for terms of consider that for terms of the level the amount of discipline well, there are t the, the conduct constitutes two separate violations. So you have uh, Mr. Kennedy starting out this relationship with this 22-year-old uh, client on April 15, 2015, when she's coming into his office in Rochester saying, and she's expressing concern about how she's going to pay for this $11,500 retainer on a fifth-degree drug case, uh, saying, how am I going to pay for this? And he starts starts it off right out on April 15th, 2015 by saying, a cute girl like you shouldn't have to pay like for this, right? And things escalate from there. Uh, and so it's the accumulation of, of all of those comments, including then on June 22nd, 2015, in, this, in the second recorded statement, that's Exhibit 4A and the transcript is 5, where he is then also uh, having discussions about a previous client he's represented. I, I guess my question is, can we impose a higher amount of discipline because that conduct violated two separate rules? Yes. Okay. Multiple, that, that goes, 
Thank you for clarifying that, Your Honor. I'm sorry I didn't get to it right away. That goes to the cumulative nature of the violations, and that's that, that's that original formula that the court looks to. So the nature of the misconduct, it is serious. Are the violations cumulative? Yes, they are. There are multiple rule violations here. What is the harm to the legal profession, and what is the harm to the client? That is the baseline formula that the court applies. And then you look at the adders and the subtractors, the aggravation and mitigation. And then finally, you look to the court's precedent to make sure that the court is imposing consistent discipline across the board. Since the court has no further questions, I will address the court further in rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Newmark. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Eric Newmark. I represent Mr. Kennedy. Uh, I'm going to address the, uh, the separate violations in order. First, I'm going to address the, the one that's most easy to resolve, which was the trust account records. Uh, Mr. Kennedy admitted uh, to the violation of the trust account records. The referee found that the uh, violation was, was merely technical, which it was. There was no allegation that Mr. Kennedy was misappropriating funds. There was no allegation that he was commingling funds or anything of the sort. Uh, the allegation that he admitted to was that he was failing to properly account for $200 that was his own uh, law firm's money that was kept in the account as is permissible by the rules. Uh, and so in that regard, um, there's, there's really no justification for any sort of uh, suspension of his, of his license, and perhaps the, the only remedy for that should be a, an a extension of his probation. As it relates to the alleged sexual conduct, um, the, as, as was pointed out, there are essentially two separate violations alleged on the same conduct. Uh, the first is uh, this um, alleged um, sex for uh, fees, uh, and the second is the alleged sexual harassment. I'll, I'll take those in order. Uh, the record does not support uh, by any stretch uh, the allegation that Mr. Kennedy engaged in an attempt to solicit sex uh, for legal fees uh, in, in any serious way that could be deemed an attempt. Uh, this court has not previously addressed the issue of attempt in the context of uh, any sort of sexual conduct on the behalf of, uh, on the account of an attorney. Well, in fact, counsel, um, I notice in your brief you say the attempt to violate a rule should be disciplined less than engaging than actually succeeding. But well, there's, no, there's no citation to any case. Well, the, the, Can, the citation that I would give you, Your Honor, If I could ask my question. I'm sorry. Uh, my question is, have we uh, opined on the question of an attempted rules violation vis-a-vis -vis what discipline should be imposed as opposed to a successful rules violation? Not, not that I'm aware of. I would point the court to uh, the, the criminal statute, which is where I can find attempt, which is 609.17, which punishes an attempt half of the amount that the completed crime would be punished. But I don't believe that we need to get to that here because uh, I don't believe that there is uh, evidence to suggest that there was an actual intent or an attempt. So bottom line is you're not aware of us discussing the concept of attempt vis-a-vis -vis discipline in an attorney discipline case. I, I am not. Um, if there is one, I'm not aware of it. But I, I, as I indicated, um, attempt should certainly be disciplined less seriously, at least in this context, than an actual completed uh, violation. But I don't believe we have one here in any way. Um, there was certainly sexual banter that went on between my client uh, and KP 
Uh, some of it was recorded, uh, some of it was testified to. The original, um, there's some dispute as to what the origins of that were. Uh, KP testified, uh, as indicated by counsel, that my client uh, began uh, at least a... Well, you know, counsel, there is some dispute in the record. You're correct. Um, but particularly with regard to these kinds of factual, factual um, recitations, uh, we, you know, we, we've got a credibility determination here by the referee. And um, the referee is not, the referee doesn't really mince any words about what his view of uh, credibility issues are here. Um, and it seems to me that that's a major um, barrier uh, um, to your claim here. What do we do with the referee's findings on credibility? Two points on that, Your Honor. We do have credibility findings, but we also have audio recordings. And the audio re recordings speak for themselves. In terms of the, the, the factual determinations by the referee, I do agree that a lot of deference should be given. But as to the interpretation of those facts, I think this court has uh, the ability to uh, review those uh, more deeply. Uh, and so in, in terms of the factual disputes, on one of the recorded audios, uh, my client indicates uh, to uh, KP that she needs to get serious. That at the first meeting, all she wanted to talk about, I think the reference was, was to screwing. She doesn't dispute that, which indicates that the first uh, flirtation or banter was not Mr. Kennedy's, but was KP's. Uh, in her testimony, she says that uh, the comment that was made was, a cute girl like that shouldn't have to pay. She interpreted that as sexual banter, but that's simply her interpretation. Um, there's certainly some dispute about that. But in terms of an actual... <laughs> quid pro quo, if you will, in terms of whether there was an actual attempt to solicit sex uh, for legal fees, there was no indication in the record that this was a serious attempt. In fact, the only indication in the record at all that it was discussed was this conversation where uh, my client and KP were engaging in this conversation about how much, um, I believe it was for a hand job, and I think my client indicated a bucket time. Uh, and then there was some joking back and forth, particularly on KP's behalf, uh, about how long this encounter would last, sort of making fun of his age. So is your client's position there was an attempt, but it wasn't serious? Not that there was an attempt at all. Um, in order for there to be an attempt, there has to be intent. And so there can't be a not serious attempt. There has to be an intent on my client's behalf to essentially try to reach an agreement that KP would have provided sexual services in exchange for a reduction or for legal fees. And there's nothing in this record that supports that. Uh, there's certainly uh, conduct in this case that um, is not exemplary. Uh, certainly my client engaged in conversations that uh, were inappropriate, but that doesn't get to the issue here, which is whether he committed a rules violation uh, in those conversations. And there's nothing in the record, and in fact the referee really didn't point to anything specifically which would indicate there was an intent on behalf of Mr. Kennedy to solicit sex. He never said, I'll reduce your legal fees by this amount, if you do this, or I won't charge you if you do this, or if we can have a relationship, these services will be provided for free. There's nothing in there. The only, as I said, the only effort at all which could even be construed as that was this ridiculous idea, um, which we did the math in our brief would have resulted in about 13 years every day of a sex act in order to pay off the, the balance that was owed. So even though the referee did make specific findings uh, that my client's conduct was crass, that uh, KP was credible and that my client was, and it doesn't really get to the issue of whether the attempt was proven, and in this case I think it's very clear that it wasn't. 
uh, in order for, as I said, in order for there to be an attempt to violate the rule, and, and the rule is essentially that a lawyer is prohibited from having a sexual relationship with a client. A lawyer is certainly prohibited from having legal fees paid through sexual services. We don't dispute that, but there's nothing in the record that the director points to, and frankly that the referee can point to, which indicates there was ever an intent for Mr. Kennedy on, in, on his behalf uh, to ask for that, and certainly uh, in KP's mind, uh, she cannot point to anything in particular where she felt like she could get a reduction in fees or my client was offering in some way a reduction in fees or free legal services uh, if she would perform a sex act. It's just not simply in the record. Um, and in terms of the same conduct being sexual harassment, I, I think it, you know, if, you, if, you, if you look at the transcripts and you listen to the tapes, this is banter. This is not a person on KP's behalf who sounds in any way like she's being harassed or intimidated. She's going along with a lot of the jokes. She's instigating. But counsel, she's, if I'm correct, she's 22. He's mid-70s. He's the lawyer who is supposed to be representing her. I mean, there's not an equal relationship here. I agree. Uh, and again, I, the conduct is not defensible in terms of whether it was appropriate, whether um, those conversations should be occurring between an attorney and, and a client. Of course, they shouldn't. Um, but the question becomes not whether it's appropriate or whether, as the referee found, it's crass, but whether it's a violation of the rules justifying at all and certainly justifying the, uh, the discipline recommended here by the referee. Um, KP indicates that she felt trapped in the relationship, that she couldn't get out of it. There's certainly contrary evidence to that. Her boyfriend, uh, Mr. Cam testified, and she testified as well, that Mr. Cam approached Mr. Kennedy in his office to dispute the legal fees. Uh, she certainly, at that point, was recording the conversations. She was aware um, that she owed my client. Counsel, uh, I want to go back to sure. the, um, the uh, question of this language and the conduct of the lawyer here. Um, we do have this discussion that you've engaged in here about whether or not this was a violation of Rule 1.8G. And I'm just looking at Rule um, 8.4D, um, setting aside whether or not this is conduct um, that was uh, in furtherance of a, that, uh, that violation of Rule 1.8G. Isn't it conduct uh, that uh, is prejudicial to the administration of justice? Well, I'm not sure where the administration of justice in this case is impinged by the by the banter, if that's what you're referring to. Uh, the KP had hired my client to represent her in connection with a fifth-degree drug offense. He represented her well. She received a disposition where the charges were dismissed at the end of probation, which they were. Uh, it certainly was not an attempt for him to... Uh, somehow circumvent rules, lie to the court, or anything like that. Again, it's an inappropriate conversation. All of the conversations relating to sex are not appropriate between an attorney and a client. No doubt about that. But I don't see where the administration of justice uh, was interfered with by these, by these conversations. Um, KP in, at, at no time ever said to Mr. Kennedy, hey, this is making me uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about this. Uh, the only conversations she had or her representatives had that were contrary with Mr. Kennedy was about the fee when Mr. Cam approached her, uh, Mr. Cam approached him in his office and said that he was charging too much. Typically in a harassment situation, um, regardless of the power relationship, 
the person needs to somehow express, hey, this is making me uncomfortable. Not only did KP not do that, but KP continued to engage in the same kind of conversations, the laughing, the joking, how long he would last in a sexual encounter and things like that. It's only later uh, when this fee dispute comes up that the conversation in her mind changes and she feels harassed and she feels she was being solicited for sex. Council, let's, uh, let's say we disagree with the arguments that you're making now and that we determine the respondent did commit the misconduct alleged in the petition. Then let's talk about what the discipline should be. Um, you make an interesting argument toward the end of your brief. You say respondent is 74 years old, two years is likely the rest of his legal career. I think you're saying to us, we need to take into account his age in determining what kind of suspension to impose. Do you have any authority for that proposition? No, Your Honor, and I, I understand that discipline is, is, in, is not punishment. It's not intended to punish uh, an attorney. And so the court, when the court determining appropriate discipline, takes into account all the factors previously discussed, his, his prior history of discipline, the conduct here, uh, how this court has uh, disciplined similar attorneys. So no, I frankly, I don't believe that uh, his age is appropriate in terms of determining what the appropriate discipline is. Okay, I, then I misinterpreted your brief. Uh, you probably did not. Um, I agree that that was included in the brief, but I don't agree uh, here today that that should be part of the uh, part of the decision. Um, so I guess I will move on to the issue of what discipline should be imposed. Uh, as I said, it's our position um, that the violation that my client admitted to is the only one that has been proven. I certainly don't agree uh, that my client engaged in uh, sexual harassment of KP. I also don't agree that my client attempted in any way to solicit sex from KP. There's no allegation here that he actually engaged in a sexual relationship with KP uh, or attempted physically to um, have her uh, engage in a sexual relationship with him. But and again, so assuming that the misconduct has been proven, it seems to me your client just isn't getting the message from this court from his previous encounters with the court. Um, that maybe he needs a two-year suspension to really understand that we expect him to comply with the Minnesota Rules of Professional Conduct. How do you respond to that? Well, if, if you look at his prior history of discipline, um, a few of them relate to the trust account records, and I think we've, we've talked about that. Um, none of them, none of the prior allegations or none of the prior disciplinaries involve him acting to the detriment of his client. Uh, in any case, the, the most recent ones involve him representing a witness uh, and a defendant in a, in a criminal case. Uh, there was one where he was uh, alleged to have an, uh, essentially offered in a criminal case to um, have his client, who was the victim of a criminal case, testify perhaps more favorably for the defendant if he could resolve a civil case. And he's, in that violated, case he's violated a wide variety of rules. In, in, that, in that case, I would note that the court uh, ruled four to three in favor of whether there was a violation at all. So three members of this court specifically. Yeah, we're not going to relitigate that. The, the, the majority of the court spoke, speaking for the court, and yeah. he's violated a wide variety of rules, has he not? He, he has, and, and he's been on, it's true, he's been on probation. Uh, for a period of time, and these new violations occurred when he was on probation. Um, however, I, I think the court should take a look at the, the, the not only the cumulative, um, the number of them, but also the serious, uh, the seriousness of, of the misconduct. In each case, this court has determined that a 30-day, the, the, the most the court has determined was that a 30-day suspension was warranted. This well, conduct- Counsel, in your 
find that same paragraph of your brief that we've been talking about. You cite the Alley case, 30-day uh, suspension, and say a similar sanction seems more appropriate. Seriously? Well, so if, if these, if we accept these um, allegations as true, that he's committed this misconduct, you're seriously arguing 30 days is enough? Your Honor, I, I did not argue in my brief that these allegations were true. No, you said if we determine that he committed the misconduct alleged in the petition, then you're saying you cite the Alley case and say a similar sanction seems more appropriate. If the court finds that um, he violated the trust account records, I think that a 30-day suspension would be the outward limit. I don't believe, Your Honor, that this conduct here, considering that there was no attempt to solicit, there was no harassment uh, of Yeah, KP. but counsel, I'm going to interrupt you. This paragraph, which is in the paragraph immediately prior to the conclusion of your brief, at page 17, says, if we determine the respondent did commit the misconduct alleged in the petition, then two years is too long. And you conclude by citing Alley and saying something similar to 30 days is appropriate. Really? I do, I do yes, I do believe that two years is, is, is way too long for the allegations here. And 30 but days is enough? I think 30 days is certainly much more appropriate than two years. Uh, the director talked about this constellation of misconduct here. Uh, but as 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 is pointed out, it's it's essentially one series of acts, um, one series of acts which involve these conversations. We've talked about the conversations. Um, KP was involved in this joking, this sexual banter. We've also got uh, the allegations of false statements too. That's that that's correct, Your Honor. And I do believe that the 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 false allegations can certainly be put into a, a different a different box. My client. Uh, was asked specifically about his remembrance of these conversations. He testified he didn't remember them very well. Uh, the KP had the advantage made, of... And the referee here made a credibility determination that he didn't believe him. And, and it seems to me that that's a credibility determination that we have to give some credence to. I think that I think the court does give deference to those those credibility findings. The The denials that he made related to specific conversations that occurred you know, some period of time earlier, he did testify, I think, candidly that uh, he was on prescription medication during the time period. To address the question earlier about whether he presented any mitigation, uh, he was not, he did not testify that he's addicted to drugs. He did not testify that he's got an alcohol problem because he doesn't. Uh, his testimony was that he had specific surgeries during this period of time, which required him to be medicated. Uh, that wasn't only his testimony, but that also was contained in the uh, the, the transcripts and, uh, and, the, and the recorded phone conversations where he's telling KP that he had surgery, that he's taking codeine, he went to her work to apologize, and then there's another conversation where he says that as well. And so I think the court can take that into account in determining uh, his, his lack of memory of these conversations and, and what, how much weight the court should give to that and what discipline should be imposed. Um, but to, to sort of summarize here, I, I think that the two-year recommended by the director and two-year suspension recommended by the referee is far excessive uh, when you look at the actual conduct here. I think that would be a, a, a better uh, and more accurate re uh, recommendation if an actual sexual relationship had occurred, if in fact my client had solicited directly uh, sex for, for legal fees and that had actually occurred, um, two years is... is, is not appropriate, even given his, his discipline history with the conduct here, which I think can be fairly characterized as uh, 
certainly at best a lack of memory or perhaps dishonesty as the referee found regarding these conversations that had occurred some years previously, uh, but also the, 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 the inappropriate but joking nature of the conversations they had with KP. Two years is, is, is uh, just excessive given all the facts here, even given his history. We'd ask the court, uh, first of all, to determine that there were no violations as it related to conduct other than uh, the trust account violations. And if the court uh, believes that there was other rule violations, ask the court to uh, impose discipline far less uh, dramatic than the recommendation of the referee and the director. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Bovitz, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Respondent's counsel stated this was one series of acts attempting to minimize the misconduct here. This was not one series of acts. This misconduct started in 2015, on April 15th, 2015, and it continued through June 15th, 2018, when respondent met with the director and lied during the meeting with the director's office, and through respondents changing defense theories that occurred through the referee hearing. Now, the director is not alleging that respondent's conduct in his testimony at the referee hearing is separate misconduct. The referee clearly captured that in terms of respondent's lack of remorse. But what is notable is that respondent's defense theory changed once he was placed under oath. It became very flexible at that time to, I don't recall and I don't remember. The court could draw its attention to Detective Nelson's testimony on pages 236 through 240 as it relates to respondents' false testimony. This court recently, in the case of Inri C., just imposed a 120-day suspension, 120 suspension on a false statement case for a lawyer with one prior disciplinary, public disciplinary matter. Resp Detective Nelson testified on pages 236 through 240 about how he specifically provided respondent notice of every allegation against him that was provided by KP. Not once did respondent say he didn't recall. His response was not that he didn't recall. It was that it did not happen. So in 2015, October of 2015, when respondent was allegedly under the influence, memory impaired, being presented with questions by Detective Nelson, the response was not, I don't recall. In fact, he provided specific responses to Detective Nelson. Dishonesty alone is serious misconduct, and we have two of those acts here. Respondent also argues that KP's testimony somehow changed or that her theory changed or that the theory of this being unwelcome changed. The record, again, tells another story. There are witnesses that testified that corroborate KP's testimony that, in fact, this sexual harassment 
that this attempt to engage in a sexual relationship was unwelcome and unwanted from day one. In fact, AM, who is KP's coworker and wholly unrelated to KP on any personal level, testified that from the beginning of the representation relationship, KP advised her of how uncomfortable she felt about the things respondent was saying and how about an early April respondent appeared at KP's work and apologized for the inappropriate sexual comments he made to her. And AM testified that respondent made statements about being hopped up on his wife's pills, not his own. Again, a change in the defense theory. Respondent here appears to have difficulty telling the truth. The legal profession is built on pillars of integrity and honesty. A two-year suspension is the minimally appropriate discipline in this case. Another important point not to be lost is the 8.4a attempt to violate 1.8j should not be confused with the nomenclature of an attempt to exchange for legal fees. The attempt to violate 1.8j is that attempt to violate 1.8j to have a sexual relationship. It doesn't have to be that attempt to barter for legal fees, although that was nomenclature that was used. The attempt is respondent's attempt through his words and his actions to engage in a sexual relationship with KP, which is replete through the record. Here we happen to have a surplus, including respondent's own recorded words. The director, director respectfully requests that this court give deference to the referee's recommendation and impose a minimally appropriate suspension of two years. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.